Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, day 15 of our daily podcast from the 57th New York Film Festival. In a moment, we're going to listen to the complete audio from our panel discussion earlier this week, We Love Agnes, celebrating Agnes Varda. Tell you about that in a minute. Um, I'm joined on the podcast today by my good friend and our colleague here in New York, Raj Roy, Chief Curator of Film at MoMA. Hey, huge. Welcome. Welcome, Raj. <laughs> good to Raj. be here. It's good. good to have you Happy here. Happy belated birthday. Thank you very much. Um, before we dive into Agnes, uh, and thank you for participating in the panel discussion about her and her work, um, I thought it might be interesting to talk with you about um, the New York Film Festival and about film culture in New York, the um, preceding all of us. The New York Film Festival began... Um, as as a celebration that had a strong connection between these, that, that drew a connection or built a connection between these two institutions, um, Lincoln Center, before the, yeah. before the Film Society of Lincoln Center existed, before Film at Lincoln Center existed, and the Museum of Modern Art's Film Department. Um, what do you think? Uh, tell me about your own your own connection to the New York Film Festival and what it means to you personally, but also to film culture here in New York. Yeah, no, I mean, when the evolution from the Film Society to Film at Lincoln Center happened earlier this year, I was uh, privileged to give some thoughts of my memories. Uh, and one of the horrifying things I realized is I've been around the New York Film Festival long at least half of its own existence, <laughs> which was a terrifying reality to face. But um, I have very distinct memories of being, you know, a newbie in New York in the mid nineties, lining up. I, I remember lining up to see Boogie Nights specifically. I don't know if it was the first or second year that I'd come to the film festival, but um, what a moment um, to be a part of at that point, a young, you know, artist's career and a film that, you know, really spoke to a generation that was still in love with the mechanics of filmmaking and specifically celluloid filmmaking, which, you know, Boogie Nights, in, amongst other things, is about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that, you know, for me, has always been a reflection of what the film festival has meant. It's, it's as much a celebration of the lovers of cinema as it is about the great creators of cinema. Um, you know, I've read up since, you know, I became the chief curator of film at the Museum of Modern Art about the history between the two institutions. And I know MoMA was once an early host for the film festival. Uh, but in many ways, the Film Society was almost set up as a counterpoint to the Department of Film at uh, the Museum of Modern Art, um, not in necessarily a complimentary sense, but almost <laughs> as a foil. Um, happily, you know, fast forward nearly 60 years, um, we're great collaborators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I, I really think of us as two pillars of film culture in a city that remains, at least in the U.S., um, a citadel of, mm -hmm. of cinephilia. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, you and I certainly and Leslie and my team at, at MoMA and your team, um, as, as well as our great colleagues in Brooklyn at BAM and, you know, downtown at all the, the great venues there, really see our responsibility as increasing. Um, you know, not because cinema culture is dying anyway, in, in a way it's flourishing in the city, but the risks are all around us. Um, and so to, you know, to have this great beacon of the New York Film Festival thriving is is just super important. 
So, so you bring up a great point and tell me about two things then. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that risk and, and what you feel from your vantage point at the Museum of Modern Art, but also tell me about what's about to happen at the Museum of Modern Art. And as we head into this final weekend of the New York Film Festival, um, the next, at least for me and for many in the city, the next exciting moment is just a few days away with the reopening of the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, so you're going to toss the baton to me, hope, yeah. or hand it if you still have some strength, but you can just <laughs> toss it my general direction. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're going to reopen the latest you know, uh, iteration of MoMA. MoMA has evolved throughout its 90-year um, history. Um, but this is a profound change. Yes, it's increasing in space, but we're really profoundly changing the way we tell the story of modernism. Mm. And most interesting, hopefully, for, for listeners, um, will be the idea that modernism didn't start with painting. And that's been my line for the last year or so in talking about this. Modernism uh, began with some profound social changes, um, urbanization, migration, um, industrialization, technology. And born of those things were um, the kind of photographic revolution and immediately thereafter, the moving image revolution. Um, and so you'll see that front and center and that'll be you know ingrained in the whole narrative of modernism and what it means um, is that basically all these artists were born, born photo literate and were nurtured through this new art form of the reproducible image, um, which of course film is a part of. So the risk, one of the risks is that we collectively, certainly at MoMA has a huge risk because we're an, a museum, but that we not fossilize the experience of going to the cinema, mm -hmm. right? We not turn it into something old that seems quaint and yeah, I'll go visit that from time to time <laughs> when auntie's in town, right? <laughs> it, it needs to be a thriving part of our lives. And so we're, we're paying very close attention to that at MoMA in the way we talk about cinema and making sure we acknowledge that yes, it has a long history at this point, over a hundred years, but that it is still absolutely current in everything we're doing um, and that social media, all of the images that we're sharing, the stories that we're sharing, this is all born of a tradition of great storytelling that comes from the reproducible image. Mm. And just to put a date on it, the museum is reopening in October. Uh, October 21st is first public day. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're very excited to, again, allow artists who have maybe felt somewhat marginalized in MoMA's history, even though they're part of the the family of artists um, feel front and center. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited for audiences to experience that. Um, in a moment, as we as we pivot to the second part of this podcast, we're going to hear the complete conversation that, again, thank you for participating in. Um, it was a conversation about Agnes Varda, who we've dedicated the festival to this year. Um, we were joined by uh, Rosalie Varda, her daughter, and, and the producer of her latest film, Varda by Agnes. Um, as well as uh, Karen James, who's a critic from BBC and has written for numerous publications, uh, along with one of our own programmers here at Lincoln Center, Maddie Whittle, who is uh, part of the team that created and curated this uh, program of this retrospective, this look at the work of Agnes um, that will be coming to film at Lincoln Center later this year. Um, one of the uh, two things we didn't talk about um, on the panel, which we're about to listen to um, in depth, really, I don't think we really talked in depth about 
Agnes's career. We talked a little bit about her career, sort of fine art and outside of film. Mm. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that and some of the ways that Agnes was pushing her own boundaries and and how she had been for much of her career into a, another uh, art form. And then and then I also want to ask you to uh, you were you were at her memorial after she passed in in March, and I would love for you to share some a little bit of that experience yeah. with our listeners. No, I mean it might be one surprise for those who have seen the film or will see it this fall. Um, the new film of Arta by Agnes, is all the time she spends talking about things other than cinema. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the great revelations of getting to know her was discovering, especially her early photography. You know, some of her earliest work as an artist was as a photographer. And these are stunning images that you begin to get a glimpse of in the film, um, but really have informed the way she looks and the way she frames and the, the types of people she engages with. Um, and it's uh, the, the film is kind of done in chapters. So there's the kind of analog chapter and then there's the digital chapter. Mm. And I mean, the fact that Enya's Vardo was a digital innovator, you know, way before uh, <laughs> people had a comfort level, she learned to do it not because it was hip or cool or trendy, but because it was super strategic for the type of story she was able to tell using it, mm. um, which was, you know, it's a true sign of a great innovator. I think her installation work, uh, which is now uh, a piece is actually in MoMA's collection, um, is something that is yet to be discovered, truly. Um, there are people who you know, could go to her gallery installations in Paris, would have known it perhaps, but really in the US, it is truly an unknown body of work. And that will be an exciting thing to uncover. I mean, it's maybe one heartbreak that I have is that we weren't able to do that more with her um, while she was alive, but um, she knew and she had my assurance. and certainly Rosalie's um, true championing of the kind of spectrum of, of Agnes's work. So look forward to that coming down the pike soon um, to hopefully a gallery near you. Um, and in terms of her farewell, I mean, the, the thing was it caught us all off guard even though she was 90 and even though she had been ill for a long time just because of the vibrancy of her final years. Um, Faces Places obviously was, you know, a, this global phenomenon that was just amazing ride to be on and just a love train. Um, but then, you know, to, to kind of say goodbye to her in Berlin this year, um, it, it didn't really hit home, even though those of us who were close to her knew how ill she was and knew what a struggle it was to get up on that stage in Berlin and present her final work. Um, she went out um, to LA Woman by the doors. Uh, she's she's buried with Jacques Demy in the uh, Montparnasse Cemetery. Please visit it. It's a new you know site, a pilgrimage site. But to go out on that joyful note, um, and we all threw flowers um, in with her and and Jacques. Um, it it gave us what we needed, as she always has, which is that kiss goodbye, um, saying, "Don't mourn. Remember and learn, but don't mourn. Celebrate life." Um, and that truly is hopefully another message of far to buy and yes. Uh, thank you, Raj Roy, for participating in this podcast today. And thank you for, um, for, the, for participating in the panel discussion, which we're about to listen to. So um, you're going to hear a conversation between uh, Raj Roy from MoMA, um, the film critic Karen James, uh, Madeline Whittle, who's a programmer from Film at Lincoln Center, and Rosalie Varda. Uh, we had a terrific time. We're excited to share it with you. And I'll say it again. The title of the panel was simply, We Love Agnes.
With 59 Primetime Emmys and 30 Academy Awards, HBO Documentary Films has been bringing audiences a full spectrum of stellar, non-fiction programming by acclaimed documentary filmmakers for decades. Dive into the year's most compelling documentaries and get ready for the powerful films to come. Stream the stories that matter, including The Case Against Adnan Saeed, The Inventor, Emmy Award-winning Leaving Neverland, just to name a few. And look out for the exciting new films coming soon, only on HBO. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. Um, we've really been looking forward to this opportunity tonight to talk about a filmmaker who's very meaningful to all of us personally, who are on this panel, and probably to many of you in the audience, and also a filmmaker who's very meaningful to the New York Film Festival. She's a filmmaker who's had a film in every single decade of this 57-year-old festival. Um, so we are really thrilled not only to dedicate this year's festival to her, uh, and also we are excited to celebrate her work with a comprehensive retrospective later this year. So to help, um, to help us and to instigate and lead us in a conversation about Agnes Varda, we've um, gathered a panel of folks who will have an opportunity to talk with me, but also who will uh, engage with you. So um, first off, please join me in welcoming a producer of Varda by Agnes, and the daughter of Agnes Varda, Miss Rosalie Varda. Please welcome. <laughs> welcome again, Rosalie. Uh, my friend Raj Roy is the chief curator of film at the Museum of Modern Art, and he's sporting a very swanky Agnes Varda tote bag. <laughs> Raj Roy. Karen James is a film critic for the BBC. Welcome, Karen James. And my colleague, Maddie Whittle, is a programmer here at Lincoln Center, and she's also going to tell us in a little while about the upcoming retrospective. Welcome, Maddie. So as everybody knows, this is our casual space. So uh, we're in the living room. So just enjoy, settle in. Um, I have a couple questions. I really want to provoke each of you to talk about Agnes Varda, talk about her work, what it means to you. And, and again, we'll take questions from the audience and um, questions, thoughts, memories. Um, today is really about kind of launching, kicking off this um, extended celebration of Agnes Varda that starts uh, with the film playing here this week, and again, continues with the retrospective. Uh, Rosalie, it's been so exciting and meaningful to be at, at an, a bunch of different festivals this year, um, celebrating your mother and her work and your work together. Um, I can only imagine the kinds of encounters and experiences you're having, whether it was in Cannes this year, which was a terrific celebration of, of your mother, um, and, but I'm also thinking of Telluride, uh, this this past year as well, which was really special. Yeah. So um, maybe uh, how, how has it been? To, it must it must be really, um, if nothing else, uh, an, an opportunity to uh, to share in the the feelings that we all uh, have for for Agnes Varda this um, past few months. First, uh, I, um, first I want to tell you, Eugene, that uh, I've been here at this festival with Agnes several times. 
Um, this festival was very special for her because I think it was the first time she came in New York, uh, she came to this festival. So this festival was kind of, you know, she had a lot of love for the staff, for everybody, for the place, for the Lincoln Center. So I'm very happy to be here tonight because, you know, I accept only to talk about her in places, in festivals where she used to love to go. Oh, it meant something for her, first. Second, you know, it has been kind of a, a road full of uh, love and empathy since Agnes uh, died in, in end of March. And I have to say that while working with her, I did not realize really um, how she had an influence on a lot of different uh, type of person. I mean, journalists, but students, cinephile, normal people, art people. And so I've been strong to do all I'm doing about transmission and preservation because of all the meetings and all the encounters I've been through. And I have people like Raj and some others that are, I feel that they are with me. So, you know, it's very special. I have, on one side is my mother, and on the other side is the public filmmaker with a long life of work, a body of work, and that we are just beginning to realize that she has been very important in narration, in um, being a searcher of narration, of being between short film documentaries and fiction, how the digital came in her life, and this is film we have done is about that. I've been a little bit long, maybe. Not at all, not at all. Um, let me ask you one more question, a uh, more personal one, but uh, when you were growing up, I wonder at what point you realized, was there a moment or a time in your life when you realized that um, she wasn't just your mother, but she was Agnes Varda, and that difference between <laughs> Maybe I'm going to make you same. laugh a little bit, but um, when I was little, uh, I, you know, in school you have to put the name of your parents, and usually they ask you, what do they do as a job? So I remember very clearly coming back home and asking Agnes and Jacques, saying, what should I put? So Jacques said, well, you can put I'm a poet, okay? Um, and this is for, Jacques Demi. Yeah, Jacques Demi. And, <laughs> and Agnes said, you put cineast. And I said, what is cineast? You know, well, I do films, okay. And then I asked them, but what age you are? And they say, we're 35, and we, it's going to be long staying 35. <laughs> okay? I know that now. <laughs> and so I went back to school. I put poet. The teacher looked at me and said, but your father is a poet? Okay. Weird thing. Okay. So, you know, it was a little bit like that. And I said to them, you know, you're not, um, you're not very well known, in fact. So maybe I could change my name. And I could call myself Rosalie Bardot. It would mean more. <laughs> so 
So when you know what happened with Brigitte Bardot, thanks God I did not change my name. <laughs> Glad you kept it. Um, no, to be serious, yeah. um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. I, I, I went on shootings, but I didn't really realize what it meant. Um, I, I think I realized more uh, what it really meant um, maybe at 11, 12 years old. But then, you know, I grew with the film. That means I saw them at each age of my life. And in mm -hmm. fact, in a way, each time I saw them differently. When, you know, the Ambrelage of Cherbourg, I had my first love affair that did not work. Then I understood, you know, that you could cry for that. It's, 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 you know, with Matthew, my brother, we always say the films are a little bit our children in a way, and, and we cannot say one, we prefer one, but what we can say, we've been raised in this as it's normal to see new films that your parents have done. And sometimes the subject we could not understand at, a, you know, a certain age. But each time you see a film, each decade, when you re-see the film, you see it differently. And I think what is very interesting in education is how you can, with a teenager or children, it depends on the film, and adults, if you see a film several times and you kind of study a film a little bit, you discover much more each time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that when I go and do, you know, kind of master class, and I, I try to tell them a film that you really like, don't be ashamed to see it several times in your life. You will always discover something new. Thank you. Um, Raj, we, one of the things I've been thinking about with uh, Agnes Varda is that um, unlike some filmmakers who, who have an illustrious career um, and, and we celebrate them after their passing, sometimes there's a, there's a gap between their most recent work and, and the moment when, when they pass and we're able to kind of take stock. In this case, um, Agnes was working right up until the last moment. Her film, in fact, her most recent film, which we'll see this week, had just premiered at the Berlin Festival in February. She passed in March. Um, you at, at MoMA and your role at MoMA have been able to support, um, collect her work, but also support her more recent work. Um, I wonder if you could talk about some of the, the more specifically, some of the, the um, work that you've done in supporting Agnes in her more recent uh, films. Uh, and why? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's been the profound pleasure of my life, both professionally and, and very thankfully personally, um, thanks to the people that Rosalie and, and Agnes are. But I've been sitting here just realizing that she was with us in February. Yeah. And, and it's, it's crazy. Uh, and uh, all of this... She knew, she knew that this film, the latest that you'll experience, I think, starting tomorrow, uh, here at, at the film, or at film at Lincoln Center, at the New York Film Festival, uh, and then across the country, and it's already been around the world, is what she wanted you to have. It's her goodbye kiss, in a way. It's her invitation to be an artist and be involved with an artist's life, and for me to be um, 
you know, responsible for the collective memory of cinema culture that, that MoMA has been responsible for. And, and Agnes has been a part of the MoMA family for years. Um, Larry Kardish introduced me to, to Rosalie and, and Agnes nearly 13 years ago when I got this crazy job. And, um, and it's because of that friendship and that closeness that I was at a lunch, I don't know, six or seven years ago, um, which, you know, whenever Rosalie and Agnes would come to New York, we would find a time to meet and we found a time to have lunch. And they told me about this documentary of working with a young, crazy French street photographer named JR. Had I ever heard of him? Yeah, sure, I've heard of JR. Well, he, you know, we're making a, a film and um, we just need a little bit more to get it across the finish line. And my God, am I so grateful that I happened to be in that position at that time to do something for, as you mentioned, one of the world's great artists, period. Cinema, photography, installation, sculpture, as you'll see in the film, Agnes touched all of it um, and touched it all profoundly. Um, but the fact that, I mean, yes, it's both strange and frustrating that they needed our support, but such a blessing to me and, and hopefully to the world ultimately that um, we, we were able to do this. And I have to say, I mean, she would never say it and hopefully the record will write it and I'll hopefully be a part of that. Rosalie Varda has done so much for cinema culture. Yes, this woman was her mother, but you took an artist who frankly could have been in that situation where her best work was behind her and gave her the opportunity with Faces Places and with Varda Bayanez to be brand new and to be brand new on, as she said, goodbye. Yeah. We, we were good partners in crime. <laughs> no crime. In crime of cinema. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your, your question, Eugene, but um, you know, it, it was both confusing that someone like me, you know, our, our generation could be of use to someone, a, a titan, like, like Agnes, but also it, may, it brought it bound, back down to the essential, which cinema in many ways is about the relationships. And I think Agnes has always asked us to find that, right? Find the human connection. And I had forgotten that in a way. And working with them both brought me back to that, and I will never go back to forgetting. It, it, it will be impossible. The last years that I've spent with Rosalie and Agnes, um, including this moment and continuing, um, will not allow me to forget what she has taught us always through her work, which is that humanity is what propels us and should drive us to be creative and to be productive citizens. Thank you. Uh, Karen, um, you're a film critic and, and writer and thinker about film. Um, maybe from a personal perspective, help us understand maybe how you were introduced or how Agnes's work introduced itself to you and, and what it, not just what it means to you personally, because I, I, as I mentioned to you backstage, I'd love for you to speak personally, but also if you might opine about her impact on, on cinema, on culture of cinema. Well, unfortunately, I never met her. But one thing that struck me, and, and she alludes to it a little bit in the new film, is that even people who only know her through her films have this great affection for her. 
It's a very personal response, and partly because we know her on screen as a presence. It's very vivid, warm, open presence. And so even other filmmakers that we may respect enormously, you don't have that same connection that I think we have for her. And it's a very unusual thing, I think, and it speaks to who she is and what she put into her film. And I'll give you another little preview or something. The BBC, which I write for, does an annual poll of international critics, which they're in the process of doing now. And this year's question is, what are the 10 best films by women directors ranked? And my number one, without doubt, is Cleo from Five to Seven. There was no question one of her early films because it's groundbreaking in so many ways. The use of real time, the way that she moves the camera, but also it is so emotionally resonant, a woman waiting to hear whether she has cancer, and it holds up tremendously well, which is astonishing for a film of its period. It looks like the 60s, but it feels like today because she gets the emotion of all of her characters, especially women. And I think that's a through line in all of her films from start to end. She has this emotional reality that means they age the way classic films age. They don't feel dated, they don't feel like time capsules. And I also think that she really didn't get the kind of credit. I know it's not a contest, but the guys in the new wave got such a lot of credit, and she did not for, and her work is so innovative, and her camera work is so incredibly graceful, and the way that she combined um, documentary and fiction in all of her films, it's really important and groundbreaking. And I think she's just now, thanks to people like Raj and you, starting to get the credit for that that she should have gotten at the start of her career, I think. Can I just say something about yes. the Nouvelle Vague? Because it's funny. Um, so she directed her first film in 1954. She never did a short film before, and um, she did not know the people of the Nouvelle Vague or the Cahier du Cinéma, the, you know, the famous critic uh, journal. I don't know how you say it. Magazine. Magazine, yeah. Um, and when the film was released in one cinema, like a double programmer, uh, of course, Les Cahiers did very bad reviews. And François Truffaut did a bad review. And years later, he wrote a letter to, to say, I'm so sorry. Um, your film, in fact, is very important. And um, we didn't understand your film when we saw it. But I'm saying that because I think, you know, the Nouvelle Vague um, is very important. And all those men of the Cahiers du Cinéma were thinking about a new way to direct films, it, it, it is important too. But it was kind of a two worlds. Mm -hmm. They could not imagine that if you did not go to a cinematheque, if you hadn't seen three films every afternoon and after going to the coffee and redoing the film and drinking a beer and, and next day writing and everything, you could not direct a film. And I think they were a little bit annoyed you know, like a little bit annoyed, you know. So they put, prefer to put it on the side and just say, we don't know about that film, you know. And weirdly enough, she met Jacques Demy in 58. 
at the Tour Festival for Short Films, which, where she has presented Du Côté de la Côte, which was um, a little film about the French Riviera. They, they, they met, they fell in love, and, and after, finally, it's Jacques who really helped her to do Godard and Jacques Demy, who helped her to do Cléo. And then after, she was not in the Cahier du Cinéma with the group of the guys, because they, they were very misogyn globally. But she was accepted as a film director, which is so incredible now if we think about that, because this was the reality. But she didn't care. She was on the top of that. She said to me, I'm not a position to put myself as a film director. I'm a, f a woman film director. No, this is not my thing. I'm a film director point. And it's only the work that is important. And that we need this to work. And not to put seduction first. Work first. Um, Maddie, I'm going to ask you um, two questions. The first question is really kind of the same one that I that I posed to Karen, and that is maybe to speak personally about Agnès and and her work, what it means to you, picking any or as many films as you want, but also um, as a member of the programming team here at Film and Lincoln Center to also uh, talk about um, collecting that work and presenting it later this year in the retrospective, and so to talk a little bit about the approach that, that you've taken uh, with our, that our team has taken to put this together for later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, uh, not to repeat a title that's come up multiple times, but absolutely, uh, Cleo from Five to Seven was my introduction to Agnes um, and meant a great deal to me um, when I first encountered it. I was studying film, studying French film in particular, spent some time uh, in France, studying film in Paris. And uh, I, I was mostly uh, engaging with uh, the uh, new wave directors who were men, the, the, the men among the new wave film roster. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was a little bit later that I saw my first film uh, by Varda, and I was blown away. It was something completely different. And um, I, I, I hesitate to say that I related to it differently because I'm a woman and because it was the first French new wave film that I encountered from, truly from a woman's subjectivity. But I think that that was, that was a part of it. And I think that she was doing something that was um, both of a piece with this cinematic conversation that was happening at the time, but that was also something radically different. And certainly, uh, one of the most exciting things to me about bringing together a retrospective, uh, which I'm excited to say is uh, the most comprehensive retrospective of her films to date, uh, and that will be touring the country after uh, it screens, uh, or after we present it here, uh, starting in December. Um, but it's looking at the entire scope of her career is just to map out incredible mind of, of uh, an inquisitive artist who, um, you know, unlike the, the sort of stereotype of the new wave film director as the, the sort of uh, cinephile who's packing a film with references to this uh, very sort of um, self-referential self self film culture that uh, was, um, that you 
see when you think of Truffaut, for instance, she was an, a very inquisitive and exploratory creative force who just followed her inspiration in directions that made, I imagine, uh, were unpredictable and, and difficult to see coming. Um, and that's the, I think that's the, the beauty of a, of a retrospective, is that you can put these films in dialogue with each other, look at a film that she made in 1962, next to a film that she made in 1985, next to a film that she made in 19, or 2018, you know, and, and, and uh, it's sort of a, it's, it's, in some ways it's an old-fashioned model of looking at um, the work of an auteur as a, as a unified body of work, but it's, uh, when, when somebody's body of work is so diverse and rich, it's exciting and new and um, revealing in different ways. I want to ask um, each of you. Uh, well, let me ask the audience first. Uh, is there are there any is there any people are there anyone here who has never seen a film by Anya Sparta? Everybody's a, okay. Couple people. Um, for folks that are still discovering her work, or maybe. Um, folks listening to this um, this podcast and hoping to learn more for each of you um, maybe either offer a place to start a film to start with or a film that maybe that was meaningful to you for some reason that maybe might be overlooked or or maybe someone might not think to uh, to, to, to to include in a survey I'm going to start before she does because she's going to say the best one. So, <laughs> I'm going to say the Gleaners and I, because for me it it's almost like a Rosetta Stone for this this humanity that I mentioned before. Her ability to look at something that we would look at every day, and I mean it, again, this isn't there's many um, films that this would apply to that she's made, but with Gleaners. It, it's both humbling and, and almost embarrassing at first that she's able to see things that um, we should all be able to see and, and engage with people that we should all be able to engage with. But, and she, she has this ability, I'm, and I'm gonna speak about her in the present tense because she's with me still. She has this ability um, to to do something that I think if a dude was doing it, it would shame us, right? Like you're looking over these people and shame on you. And yes, never shames us. She brings us with her, even though she knows we're so far away from where she's starting, right? And she, in, in Gleaners and I, she just, it's mesmerizing and it's infectious and you will never not look in the corners and look at your neighbors the same way after you've seen it. Well, I think Cleo is a great place to start and also Faces Places if you haven't seen that. And there's such a great through line because there's a scene in Cleo when she's walking down the street and she talks about seeing the people's faces. And, and that's what Agnes did all the way through her career. I call her Agnes even though I've never known her because it, it feels so personal. But the way that she looks at people's faces is something that you see through all her career. But a little film that I think is often overlooked is Daguerreotypes, which is a little documentary that she made in her neighborhood, just looking at the shopkeepers and people on her street. And it tells you a lot about the way she looked at people and the way she encountered them and 
the way she valued everybody for whatever individual um, thing they were doing or who they were. And I think that's one that sort of gets you know, overlooked a lot because there's so much that, that, um, that she's done. Um, well, one that I think sort of stands out and stands on its own um, is uh, Le Bonheur, which in some ways uh, is one example of, of a uh, surprising entry in her filmography because it's um, the, the, the sense of humor that she injects into uh, this sort of parable about the patriarchy and about um, gendered ideas of what happiness can be and can look like and should be uh, is the humor is subtle, but it's powerful. It's 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 um, there's like an energy to the um, statement that she's making that is uh, really woven into the film on every level, stylistically and, and formally and um, texturally. And it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's remarkable. So. Uh, yeah. Rosalie, we're not um, asking you to pick a favorite because it's impossible. No, it's, it's, it's not a favorite film. I think, you know, for the young generation today, I think to go, uh, to begin by all the cleaners, offices, places is maybe the most easy to film to get in. And if they go through the film till the end, um, maybe they will, maybe they will want to see another one. You know, you you did studies of cinema, so you already studied film. But I'm talking about an, an audience that is not studying cinema. You know, an audience that look at the TV uh, is on Netflix, uh, on Amazon, and the clips, and on YouTube, and everything. I think for this generation, those two films are the good entrance. Because even if The Gleaner was done in 2000, you know, nearly 20 years ago, it is still so what we are in the society. People left over, garbage, what do we do? Can, how can we do something, each, other, each of us? I think Ivania's would have been here with us. Um, she would. She talked about those total social problems we're having on the planet, but she did it already 20 years ago. And she did it because the digital camera helped her to go near the people with a very light crew, you know, and shooting herself, speaking to the people. So there was no uh, aggressivity about a big camera and a sound person and everything. I would say that. Because, you know, Le Bonheur is very sophisticated already. It's sophisticated aesthetically, uh, by the aesthetic, uh, how she wanted to do a film. For me, it's, it's you know, Jacques Demy did The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is Matisse, which is something, and Agnès did Le Bonheur, which is Les Impressionnistes. It's the two films, weirdly, they have done those films with one year and a half of you know, difference, first the umbrella after the happiness. But for me, it's those two films, it's like if they're talking to each other. We can do the same kind of exercise of aesthetic. But Agnes took a, finally a kind of a classic subject. What is happiness? Can we love two women? 
uh, and she is a woman. So she was very criticized at that period when she did the film, yeah. because they would say that this film uh, done by a woman, it's really, you know, like uh, not normal. And this film helped, I think, a lot of men about the situation of having another woman in their life. So it's a very interesting subject how she did it. So I would say what you chose as Le Bonheur is a little bit difficult for my thought. But you can go and see it afterwards. <laughs> Have more faith in the younger generation. She's into it. It's good. <laughs> it's because I'm old, you know, no. so. <laughs> Um, before we take some questions from the audience, Rosalie, I want to ask you um, to share with us uh, an understanding of some of the work you're doing now to preserve and to uh, make uh, Agnes Varda's films available. Yes, well, Agnes began the work of preservation and uh, restoration and protecting uh, her film and Jacques Demy's film first. After his death in 1990, she really started to to gather the, all the film together on the family company. Uh, so we were able to kind of protect them. And then when the digital arrived, we were ready to do the restoration. So of course, I've been a bit helping, but I've been working re really with her since uh, 15 years and really seriously, seriously, maybe 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I, she was very concerned about preservation, and she was very concerned before. Everybody was really concerned about. She always said, "We should, you know, know the technique. We should protect the film, protect the negative, and everything." And suddenly, we were in in confronted that Cleotilde Sacasset negative burned. Lola negative burned in in the you know uh, the lab had a fire and there was maybe 200 negative of that period beginning of the 60s that burned and they didn't even say then anything to anybody really? yeah so what happened is then when she discovered that in late 90s she was like wow we have to know exactly where our, our negative so in France, we have a preservation called the Archive, uh, you know, uh, Les Archives du Film, which is a place where you can put the negative and they are protected. So she began that work uh, of first, you know, preservation. Then we did restoration, digitalize the film to have DCP. We have done that with all the catalog, except two short films of Jacques Demy, because we cannot find the negative. So we are like still searching for those negative. But the other part of her work, she started in 19, well, when Jacques was still alive, with the film she directed, Jacques de Nantes, which is a film about the childhood of Jacques Demy. And it's not only a, a film about his childhood, it's a film about the Second World War. It's the film about the film of Jacques Demy. Is it's it's a formal film where can you put in the same film a fiction, except of film done on a twenty-year uh, career, um, and and kind of a documentary on Jacques that was sick and that was going to die. So it's really a kind of a 
talented, I think, uh, film, you know. And after the film, this film, she said to me, we have to work with the young generation. We have to work with education. And you know, at the beginning, I didn't really understood all this. I thought, you know, it's, it's a bit formal. And during the years working next to her, I understood that this was very important. We are working in educational program with the films. We're, we're trying to do books. We, we did an exhibition on Jack Demi films. I hope one day we'll do a really exhibition on Agnes' work, I mean, body of work, which is photography since 1949, uh, cinema since uh, the 50s, art, visual art installation since 2003. You know, it's a body of work. But she always was ready to speak to young people, to young audience, to go in, in university. She has done so many masterclass. I respect her so much of giving her time her energy doing that. That's why I wanted to do Varda Bayanes with her. Because I thought, you know, all those masterclass, sometimes they have been filmed, you know, like in Harvard or in China or uh, in Getty Museum or I don't know, or here. But, you know, it's just filmed for archive, but it's not cinema. And I proposed her, why don't we do a film about you but it's cinema. But you speak of cinema, and at the same time, you do a lesson of cinema. I said, oh, that's a good idea. We could do that, maybe. But um, you know, people are going to be bored. I say, I don't think so, really. Because you said something very important. You said people know Agnes because she is in her film. People know Agnes' voice, because she did so many voiceover. And it's true, she puts herself a little bit in the film. So finally, people know her as they would know, not, you know, not a very close friend, but as if they would know, you know, a relative or something we meet every two or three years, you know, we meet that person. And this finally gives, um, how you say in English, very close, how you say, un rapprochement, you know, being proximity. close, yeah, yeah. proximity, exactly, proximity with the audience. I think so, you know. Until the end, she was concerned about transmission, and she said, I hope, you know, you will, with my brother Mathieu Demi, you will continue to, to, to really spread, she said, spread the good words to go to cinema. And one of the things that struck me about the new film is that it made me very hungry to see her photographs and her installations, which we don't know as much in this country, but uh, we know them in her films as she's presented them. But it would be really great to see those firsthand and have an exhibition of her photography or her installations. I hope so. That's, that's my job, no? There you go. Uh, I, can't, I can't do your job for once. <laughs> Um, we're going to take some questions from the audience, and I do want to mention, I, and I'm looking to my colleagues in the back, I think there are a limited number of tickets that were just released or are currently available for tomorrow night's screening. Jordan says yes. So um, if you are hoping to see this film 
Varda Bain, yes, I think tomorrow is your best chance. Uh, there are a couple screenings, but I think tomorrow has a few extra tickets available. So uh, after the screening, I would encourage you to uh, take, an, take advantage of that opportunity. And it's, um, it's also opening on November 22nd. Opening here as uh, and other th other cinemas, but we'll talk about here. Yes, November twenty second, <laughs> a month before the retrospective, but it'll Very be good. a fall and winter of Agnes. Very good. Okay, so let's. Um, we have microphones on either side. We're going to wait for the mic. We'll start right here in the second row, and then we'll go down the other side of the second row. Uh, we have we we're recording this for the podcast, so we'll wait for the mic for just one sec. Thank you. It's it's not really a question, but when. You were both talking about her humanity and her connection with the audience. There's an image in, I think it's the Gleaners, where she has that little camera and the lens cap kind of dangling. And then she shoves her arm out the car window, if I got the right film. And she's playing with a flab on her arm and talking about her aging. And it, it's, it just never left me, that image. That I, I, for me, that's when something clicked very profoundly with her work. So I'll share a little story when, um, so to get funding from Museum of Modern Art, it, there is a process. I tried to make it less cumbersome and onerous, but Agnes and JR made a beautiful little video pitch to the trustees of the Museum of Modern Art. And um, someday I'll, I'll share it. For, my, for now it's mine. But um, <laughs> in the video, the pitch was, well, hi, I'm Agnes Varda, and I love young people. And JR's was like, hi, I'm JR, I love old people. And we're going to make a film about that. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> we'll go to this side, um, second row. Hi. Hi, thank you very much. My question is like, how do you see more women coming into the film industry? Because she's a, it's not a very easy industry. Still, still a lot of misogyn presence there. I like that you touched on that. And second is, do you think she would have had a different career if she was to be in the U.S. versus France? Okay, so I think you know. Uh, at least in France, there's now globally 26, 27% of the film that are directed for cinema. Huh? I'm just talking about cinema by women. And there is a lot of uh, cinema producer women in France. Yeah, 27% in France of the film that have been directed last year were directed by women. Uh, it's not 50, but it's much better than several years ago, you know. And for TV, there's a lot of uh, women um, directing. But Agnes Varda said a long time ago, don't, you're not obliged to choose only being a film director. There is a lot of job in cinema, and now you have a lot of director of photography who are women. You have sound engineer who, have, who are women. Um, I mean, you're, you know, it's not only being a film director, it's, I would say, being in all the process of doing films. Editor, uh, and it's, it's much better. Anything cannot change in, in one year or two years. If you imagine that there were several generations where there was very few women, to be, you know, going to 50%, it will take several years. But I think something has totally changed now. 
if you want to do a film and you're a woman or you're a man today, I think you nearly have the same problems. You, you don't agree with me, but I produce. Okay, I produce Agnes, but I have a lot of friends who are producers in France, at least. If you look, there's a lot of women who are doing their first film feature. It's maybe not big, big, huge budget, but they're doing their films. So it's progressing. And I think now people are aware, which they were not. 20 years ago, they were really not, really like now. I mean, producers were more men, and they didn't even think it was something, a problem not to produce more women. This has totally changed now. I mean, in, in every conversation I have with people from the business, really, it has changed. It is not perfect. It will not be perfect. Never perfect. And it will be a struggle all the time. But it's better. And I don't know what Raj thinks because for the States. Second question, would her career have been different in the States? I have no clue. What I know is that when she lived in the States two times in the end of the 60s, she has done three films, two short films and one uh, fiction film. And when she was in the 80s, she did two films, a kind of one fiction and one documentary. She always have done those films with no money, little money. Then she signed a contract with EMI to do a, a fiction film with a beautiful script. Never went through. She wanted Bruce sprinting to, to be in the film, and the studio said, why, why, what a weird idea. So in the States, I have, I don't know. Uh, she was not in the system. She didn't want to be in the system. So maybe for her, it was easier to be in Europe and be in France because she you know, created her own company in 54. So that means globally, she nearly co-produced or nearly done as a production all her film. And she always said, I've done it because then I was free to decide what I've, I would do. I don't know if it helps you with my answers. You, you, do, you feel that it's not enough. What do you feel? It's not enough? I feel that I, can, I still cannot find a clear explanation why it's this glass ceiling saying that women should be in front of the camera and not directors. Yeah, it's true that women are predominantly pushed to producing or to other un below the line type of jobs in the film industry, but it, it's really hard to be a, like in the director's club as a woman, even now in 2019. And I don't find a clear explanation why. And I don't feel it's changing. I feel like personally, I feel like the Me Too movement created more resentment at this point. That's my personal opinion. Now, I think, I think it's difficult. Uh, you know, if you're in a, in a business where I would say 95% were men. And suddenly you have to put this and go to 50. You need script, good script. You need energy. You need to find a producer. 
you need all this. And this process, as you know, to do a, a long feature is maybe several years. So it's normal that it cannot be 50% now. You know what? I mean, if you want to direct a film, you, first you need to write a script. Then your script should be good enough that even better than a male script, you know? But then you find a producer, and then the producer has to find the money. So the process of production is long. And since it's long, uh, we would like now that this process is shorter, so we would have more women directing films and being, you know, finished. But the process is three years, four years. So I think this, you know, what you're telling of ceiling, glass ceiling, I don't feel in Europe so much. There's a lot of first film in France that have been directed by women in the last five years. Every year, more and more. So we, we have to continue. And I think, you know, it's not against men. That's very important. Feminist is not against men. Feminism has to be with men. And when we will convince producers, uh, actors of finance, to finance woman film, but not woman film, to finance a film, we will each time gain one step, one step. In the third row, yes, hi. Um, I was wondering if perhaps the reason the critics were so unkind to her is because they're very subject to the fad of the moment, and the Nouvelle Vague was the fad, and Agnès was not, because she speaks to the heart. And their films, although they're technically interesting, I suppose, mm, Toni Morrison said that one of the reasons people don't read modern American novels is because the novelists aren't interested in character. So if the central character has a tree fall on him or her in the third chapter, you don't miss him for the rest of the book. And Agnes was so interested in the human being and in the human heart and in all of the things that are so evident in the places and spaces, and that's, I think, how we get to know her. It's, it's just, it's not a cerebral film, although it's very enlightened, but it's, it's more than just cerebral. It's head and heart. And I, in the Nouvelle Vague, I, that just wasn't fashionable. And I wonder if she had, been, not so much whether she was in, in France or elsewhere, but if she had, come into her own, perhaps in the 90s, whether um, things might have been different. Because certainly what the critics said about her, I mean, you wondered if they even watched her films. Well, I think that's a good point, actually, because technically she was really advanced in those days. So I think people who were harsh on her were overlooking a lot of the things that were really radical that you would not even notice, or something like Vagabond, where she has all those long traveling shots. And, and it's easy to overlook that if you're just focused on the character. So I think she was shortchanged a lot in terms of the technical things that she did incredibly well that she didn't get enough credit for then. I mean, the other thing I would say, at least 
historically, I mean, keep in mind, she was coming up at a time, not only during the Nouvelle Vague, but the rise of this auteurist theory, right? So, um, which was very male-centric and Agnes was at least as interested in other people as she was herself, right? As opposed to this idea that you should be this self-contained genius and totally obsessed with yourself and your own genius. So I'm not saying that she wasn't interested in her own in intellect, she certainly was, and she was incredibly articulate about her ideas, and, but she was equally interested in individuals on their own terms, not only how she saw them, right? On, and that is kind of a profound difference from not only what these filmmakers were doing, but what critics were writing about them and this whole kind of new idea about how you talk about good cinema in, in this auteurist vein. You can tell I'm a little bit prejudiced against it and I still believe, or I believe that fundamentally cinema is, an, is a collaborative art form as Rosalie was pointing out. So the closer we can get to that acknowledgement, the closer we get to a more egalitarian uh, art form, which in essence it always has been and Agnes always knew. Hi, um, I'm just wondering, um, comparing the two films, The Cleaners and the Eye, which was made in 2000, year 2000, and uh, Faces and the Place, Faces Places, which was uh, made in 2000, 2017. Um, as uh, m most of you have said, in those films, when we're watching Annie's films, we feel actually more about her, although her cameras were focused on her subjects, but we feel her uh, humanities. Uh, so my question is, uh, closing 17 years, comparing to these two films, how can we see uh, social changes have changed her? I don't know if I can really answer this question because I'm not her, you know. Um, what changed, uh, I mean, in her work, I think the digital changed the way she worked. It did not change the way she looked at people, but it changed the way she did it. The rest of the question is difficult uh, for me to answer. Maybe you can answer that, but you know, I mean, society has, uh, of course, it's not the same between those two. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is hard because each film is very much yeah. uh, speaking to a moment. I mean, they, it will be, obviously I'm still enamored of cleaners and I, you know, suggested it as a kind of entry point. And I think Faces Places will remain an entry point to her work. But there is something personal that changed for her that I think you can see strategically, which I think is brilliant in a way that's hard to talk about because it is so personal, was the beginning of her loss of eyesight. And the very strategic idea to partner with a younger filmmaker who has demonstrated his ability to see quite well the things that are out in public and to make those things out in public. I mean, he happens to be a guy who takes images of people and makes them giant so she can see them, right? I mean, so she's taking this thing that's happening to her body, she's finding uh, a solution to it, which also happens to be a brilliant strategy for creating a new work of, of cinema. So I, I, you know, she's doing these things which aren't, 
saying strategic sounds too too strategic. You know, she did it naturally because she likes JR and he was an interesting artist and like, yeah, what the hell, let's get in your camera van and drive around France. Um, but if you've seen it, you've seen the profoundly touching and human result. And, and don't forget that JR is taking pictures of anonymous poop. I mean, not, not, not celebrities. So it really touching Agnes, you know, about her own work. And I remember when she was looking at some books of JR, like uh, the, the book on Cuba, you know, on all the walls, wrinkled walls, old people. Uh, she felt that he did not put a barrier, a kind of a fence between old and young people. She felt in, in GR, you know, a kind of humanity to approach one person, whatever is this person. And you're right to say that knowing that she would be blind, losing her eyes, she thought it was kind of a very light way of not speaking only of her, but having a young guy with black glasses that would seem much more than her. <laughs> and there's always something, you know, you can speak about serious things, but can we be light? Can we be, can we be just, you know, a little bit of humor? Can we be curious? And I would say, really, this, this really um, amazed all the people working with her is that she would keep that curiosity all the time. Even at the end, you know, she would not see always so well, but sometimes she would see better. And so she would say, my eyes are like waves, you know, like coming, going, <laughs> and I see well. And then sometimes we would say, with Gia, sometimes she's just not seeing because she doesn't want to see, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but you're right. I think it's a way of um, speaking about, you know, losing what is the most precious thing for her, her eyes, her camera, a way of being able to do a frame. But in the same time, she thought traveling with somebody, with an artist next to her, it would be softer to lose her eyes. That's, that's the idea, is can we do that, but it's not too tough? The film is a bit about that. And it's about, yes, we can chat with a young guy without being a cougar. <laughs> we have time for one more question. <laughs> Um, I have a question, but before I ask, I want to make a comment. I met uh, Agnes two years ago um, after seeing Faces Places, and it was a social gathering. And I'm meeting her 10 minutes after I saw the film, and I come and she's sitting on the chair. And I basically put, um, go on my knees like to propose her, and I'm saying, Agnes, I just saw Faces Places. There's so much beauty, there's so much humanity. And I didn't even know if she speaks English or not, so I, I, I don't speak French. And I'm like, so much heart, so much heart. And she's like, 
Yes, sounds right to me. You know, it was like, <laughs> thank you. Like, seems like movie well promoted. And like, yes, well, 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 well promoted. And I couldn't say anything else, but um, it was a very interesting touch. But at that moment, I was thinking so much confidence the person has. And the question I wish I could ask, have asked her, but I'm um, forwarding this question to you. How did she, t how did she take criticism of her own work and did she doubt her own art? What? Has she ever doubted her own art? She doubted every day. That's, uh, that's the only way to go forward. And for the critic, I think, you know, in a way, she would say, I don't really care. But like any artist, they do care. <laughs> and when it's a really bad critic, which happens sometimes, she would say, Oh, you didn't see that, no? Okay. And she would say, okay, uh, let's drink a tea <laughs> and do something else. But I think, you know, like every filmmaker, um, they want to do a film to be shared, to be seen, to have not an empty, you know, theater, to be full of people. And she always thought, her film should make you think, should make you emotion. And if somebody really do write a bad review, that means nothing work. No emotion, no thinking, no questioning. You cannot please everybody. You know, if you're loved by some people, it's enough. If you, some people are willing to see your next film, it's enough. I don't think, I don't know what you think, Eugene, but you, I don't think you can say that uh, a filmmaker had always good critic on a career. Why should every film be always top? I mean, like, you cannot do in a career always the top level of your films. It's like if you ask a painter, all, you know, should be perfect. If you ask a writer, all your books should be, you know, the best prices. I think what you should do is look a body work of somebody and try to think if this work has a meaning, has a sense. I think she would maybe answer something around that, you know, around. If there's two seconds, I'll just share a quick story. So those of you who have seen Faces Places know there's like a kind of a twist ending that's a little bit heartbreaking. Um, but ultimately is the thing that um, makes the film really work because it gets in, into your heart and into your soul. So we're all at the Oscars, right? This crazy little movie ends up at the Oscars, the front runner. Everybody thought it, they had it in their bag. I mean, the Academy thought they had it. They had Greta Gerwig up there to give the Oscar to Agnes, right? They had staged everything. Nope, <laughs> didn't win. We're all crushed. But secretly, I think Agnes was like, yes, I got my ending, you know? Jia <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, was very annoyed. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, uh, head of his uh, studio, Emil, like his producer was like, you know, he's a sportive, he does tennis, he does football, so he's in the competition, you know? He's like, like, he was like, oh, no, shit. Yeah, like that. Agnes was like, um, mm. oh, 
yeah, we were nearly, we nearly had it. And I was like, oh my God, we still, we don't have it, but we've been here, it's still here with our little project, you know, begin, you know, yeah, in a restaurant here with Riles. And I thought, well, at least we've been, we we've did, did the no, red carpet. The night before they had won the Independent Spirit Award and Anya said that was the right one. Yes. That's the one we did. Well, yes, because once again, she said, you know, when she received the Governor's Award um, the year before, um, she said, I mean, something like, I'm on the margin. I've been always in the margin, but my film went all over the world. And some of my films are loved. And this is enough for me. So maybe, you know, um, it's what we should tell young filmmakers um work and put your you mean i mean put your heart and and even if you have bad critics even it doesn't work that doesn't mean you cannot do this uh, i mean not a career but that doesn't mean you cannot do more films you know like la pointe court her first film had very bad reviews it was 54. if she would have stopped doing it because she had bad reviews we would not have the other films. So critics, I'm sorry, are important. <laughs> but I if, won't you take it do, if you do a bad critic tomorrow, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we sometimes are. we're wrong. We are out of time, I'm so sorry to say. Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us for this conversation that we entitled We Love and Yes, because we love and yes. Um, I hope you will join us uh, tomorrow night to see Varda by and Yes, and I hope to see you again later this uh, fall and winter for the celebration of her work. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.